can have a seat. Thank you for being here today. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor of Encounter Church. And um, today I am having the privilege of closing out a series that we've been working through for the last month called Gravity. And the, the essence of gravity is this, that the series is about overcoming what brings you down. And I know that maybe one of the tension points in, the, in, this, in this kind of series is maybe you've been in and you're like, well, you know, I don't have anything holding me down right now. And I hope that as you've been here over the last few weeks or as you go back and even begin to listen to some of them, that you'll find that this series isn't about just corrective maintenance. It's not just about fixing what's broken, but that the same principles of working and living and operating out of a victor's mindset, not a victim's mindset, of realizing that there is constantly in everyday life uh, an ongoing principle of the harvest that what we sow today in our decisions and habits will come to fruition tomorrow in our life. And that fear is a tension that we manage, not a problem we solve. I hope you found in those, over those three weeks, not just something that's corrective, but something that's preventive, that you can use and leverage these principles from God's word, not just to help you when you're broken or in the midst of something drawing you, pulling you down, but that you can actually use this to prevent those things from even stepping in or creeping into your life. And today we're, we're wrapping up this series by looking at what do we do with our past? Because for so many of us, our past can, be, can become a prison. It can hold us back. But I recognize that even with you and I, that phrase, our past, can draw up things that maybe even perhaps kind of would make you want to push back and say, well, I don't have a criminal record. Um, I'm not wanted in any other foreign nation. Um, you know, I haven't done those bad things. Like, I, I don't have a past. And you can hear a phrase like that and kind of say, well, okay, this message isn't for me. But here's the thing that you have to realize. When I say past, I'm not just referring to those significant monumental things that maybe you think of, like, oh, criminal record, or maybe going through a divorce, or maybe dealing with um, a financial kind of crisis in your life. Because those aren't the only prisons that we find in our past. Another prison that we find in our past are in those subtle details, those subtle patterns in our lives of the way that we always respond in anger, or the way that we always run from the conflict in our lives. It's not just the significant, it's the subtle too. And that those subtle details of not confronting reality or avoiding conflict or lying to, to just kind of give a little bit of a sheen to our reputation and who we are, that those things are just as powerful as a prison bar as the significant monumental things in life. And that when I say overcoming our past, I'm referring to both of them, because if we're not careful, our future can be held hostage by those monumental, those significant things, but also by the subtle, slight bent of our character and the patterns we respond to in everyday life, and that we can end up being kept at bay from the future God desires us to have because we're locked in the chains of our past. You see, we all have a past, and that's okay. It's okay to have a past. But what do you do when your past has you? And that's what this passage, that's what this, this kind of 
message is about is what do we do when the past has you? I think a perfect example, if you're like me, a child of the 80s, is the movie Groundhog Day, right? It's this Bill Murray is in characters in this perpetual state of having to relive this one day over and over and over. And if you've ever watched that movie, you, you know what it's like to feel the anxiety when you hear Sonny and Cher and I Got You Babe playing. Right? I mean, imagine waking up to that song every single day. If you've ever seen that movie um, and you count it, you, you realize that there are like 38 fully observable days in the movie Groundhog Day. But people who care way too much about movies actually have done research, way too much research. Um, And what you actually find in the movie Groundhog Day is not 38 observable days, but what you find is 12,395 days because of subtle things like, oh, um, this is your first day learning piano? Oh, you've never ice sculpted before? Like all those kind of subtle moments and movie scenes throughout the movie point to almost 33 years of Bill Murray's character living out the same day over and over and over again. And and all of us can relate to that in some shape or form. It may not be decades, but some of us know what it's like to go through seasons of life feeling stuck, right? Feeling stuck in a job, stuck in this pattern of character. Man, I I don't want to always get angry and lash out at my kids. And you feel stuck in it. That all of us can relate, whether it's seasons, months, years, or even decades, All of us know what it's like to live in the present with a past that still has us trapped. And today, we want to look at a moment in the life of Jesus and an exchange that Jesus has and deal with this question of what do you do when your past has you? How do you respond? How do you break free from the bars that life can press into you because of those significant moments of things done to you or done by you, and those subtle bends and patterns of our life and our character. If you have the Encounter Church Bible app, I go ahead and ask you to fire that. Um, If you have a Bible, um, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, um, no shame in that. We would encourage you to swing by starting point as you head out today right outside the door in our cafe area. We have one for you. We would love to give it to you. But in the meantime, we're going to have it on the the back screen behind me. And we're going to start in verse 4. And we're going to try to work through a significantly long portion of Scripture today. And so that means uh, it's going to be more like a 30,000-foot tour. It's not going to be a let's hike into this thing. It's going to be the helicopter version. Because there's so much in this exchange that Jesus has with this woman at the well that there's really no way that we can fully unpack it. In, in the time that we have. But here's what you need to know before we even dive in. Uh, the book of John, the fourth book in the New Testament, so about two-thirds through a physical book of the Bible, is the book of John. And John's written to a group of people who would have been like us, who would have been removed from the Jewish way of life. And so throughout John 4, you see these little brackets and these parentheses to help us understand what's happening. Because this is a, a this story, underneath this story is... Uh, some really strong social, political, religious kind of gender pressures. I mean, there is so much racial and 
ethnic tension in this passage. And, and so to understand that the Jew and a Samaritan are two people who had no reason to, to ever like each other. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The best way of describing it, if, if you're a Harry Potter fan, is that the Jews saw the Samaritans as muggles, right? They're half-bloods. They're, they, they've lost the purity of the bloodline. And so Jews were so committed to staying pure that even though if you were to look a map of Israel, the northern part of Israel and to Jerusalem, Samaria is in the in-between. A good Jew would travel literally around the exterior of Samaria, add days to his journey or her journey, just to avoid walking on the same ground that Samaritans walked on. They saw them as people who had compromised in every way, shape, and form. And they literally were a lower class people to the Jewish people. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. There was a deep rivalry. There were even moments and times where there were war and battles between the two. And so that sets the context for, for verse 4. It says, now he, being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sechar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And that's a significant statement that John throws in there. This is noon, and, and this is not a time of the day that you typically find yourself at a well. This is the Middle East. The Middle East if you've ever been in the Middle East at noon, the sun is bearing down. And a lot of Middle Eastern cultures are really active early morning and late at night, not during the middle of the day, especially in this pre-modern context where there's no air conditioning, there is no insulation. These people avoid the noonday sun. And yet Jesus is at this well exhausted and thirsty. And it says he collapses. And what we find over the next 15 to 20 verses is Jesus slowly engaging this woman in a conversation that answers the question, what do you do when the past has you? He begins, verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, will you give me a drink? John wants you to know, because John is the writer and John was there that day, that we left Jesus at that well. We're gone. That's why it says his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Like, we, we've checked out. And so the Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John, wanting us to understand, says, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. What's well, actually like the stronger weightiness of this is that literally Jesus is saying, um, this woman says back to Jesus, you're a Jew. You people don't even touch the cups we drink out of. And for me to give you a drink means I've got to give you what I'm going to drink out of. Like, you people hate us. Why are you even talking to me? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, and where can you get this living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it from himself and did also his sons and livestock? She's like, you're a crazy Jewish man. Like, what are you talking about? Living water is a, is a strange thing for us, but living water was not strange for them. They had two views in the Middle Eastern society back then. There was dead water and there was living water. Dead water came from a well. It was water that just sat there. 
It was just stagnant. And it was called dead water because like any stagnant water, if it's not properly taken care of, it could easily turn into death. Living water was streams, rivers, where the water was constantly flowing and the water stayed refreshing and pure. And Jesus, she's hearing Jesus in this conversation and she thinks Jesus is talking about a stream. And she's like, "Um, if you're really, no, 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 you don't understand. Jacob, like the most famous Jacob, he knew this land. There was no stream. There was no river. There was no fountain. That's why he built this well, because this specific area that they're currently having this conversation in is known for its dryness. Like it's famously dry. And the fact that Jacob had even dug a well was significant in itself. And she's like, um, who do you think you are? Jacob lived here. He took care of his animals. He built a business on this plot of land. In one of the driest areas of Samaria, he would have known if there was a river or a fountain. Who are you? So she's pushing back because she thinks they're having a physical conversation about physical realities. And what we're going to find is that Jesus is not having the same conversation she's having. They're having two separate conversations. Jesus is slowly pushing her past her thirst to her deeper longings. Because here's the thing you need to know. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks this water, I will give them, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, that phrase she uses, this is where the conversation gets fun. And this is where we begin to answer the question, what do you do when your past has you? Because Jesus has baited her in this conversation. He's thrown out this idea of living water that would satisfy. And she's taken the bait. And she's like, oh, give me that water. I don't want to be thirsty. And then, but did you notice what she says? So that I won't have to keep coming here to draw water in verse 15. That's why she, see, she's there at noon. Like for any Jewish Samaritan, any first century reader of this story, any disciples, as you'll see later in the story, anybody showing up would have been weirded out by this thing. Because first of all, she's by herself at noon. Women, in the Middle Eastern context, like they still today in, in many first, like third world countries, women travel together to wells. Early morning, late evening. And the reason the women travel together is because you're going to the well because you don't have running water at home. So that means you have to get all the water for you and your family, your children, if you have them. All of that water has to be collected in one moment. If you've ever traveled internationally and maybe Middle East or even parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, you will stand amazed at women walking down the street with babies strapped to them carrying water jugs that are larger than they are on their head. Because it takes a lot of work and a lot of help to get that much water into a container and to transport it back. And so this woman is obviously already there at a strange time. No woman comes by herself, and no woman comes by herself at the hottest part of the day unless there's a reason. And that's what Jesus is drawing out. You see, for you and I to get 
to answer the question of what do we do when our past has us starts with us confronting our past. That's what Jesus has been pushing her to do. He's like, it's like you've got to, let's deal with your past. Because you're here because you're fleeing from your past. You're here because you don't want to stand around other women who are talking about you. You're not, you're here because you don't want to hear them whispering. You're here because you don't want to be reminded of the way you don't fit in and the way that they don't like you because you've destroyed some of their relationships. You're here because you're running from something. That's why you're here. And what I love about what happens is here is that both the woman and Jesus are at this well on purpose. She's there to flee her past. He's there to free her from her past. And they're both gathered around that well. And she's trying to avoid all the baggage, all the mistakes, all the failures. And Jesus is not letting her off the hook. And he keeps pressing in, pressing in, until he says these words, go, call your husband, and come back. See, this woman has spent her entire life running, chasing, and looking for love in all the wrong places. And that's not just a country song line, right? That's her reality. She's dealing with the weight of a life where she says in verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. And what you've just said is quite true. I mean, she is the living picture of Sam Smith's Stay With Me. Right? I mean, have you ever listened to that song? First of all, that brother, like angels live inside his vocal cords. Right? I mean, when he sings, it's like, oh, my goodness. It's so good. Sorry, I just kind of have a bit of a man crush on Sam Smith and his singing voice. Um, it's kind of bubbled up out of me. Anyways, um, but like that song, there's so much raw emotion, right? He's like, won't you stay with me? Because you're all I need. This ain't love, it's to see, right? I mean, he's got this raw, raw, like, I know it's not love, but stay with me because I don't want to confront the reality of being alone. And this is where she is. She has sought the right thing, love, in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong places. And now she's alone, broken, overwhelmed by herself at a well because she doesn't want to confront her past. And Jesus says, if you want healing from your past, you will never find it by running from it. You have to go through it. When I was in college, um, I've kind of unpacked a little bit of my life story, but one of the things was when I was in um, Going into high school, middle, middle school, high school, I, I just found out that the guy who I thought was my dad was not, in fact, my dad, that my mom and had chosen to um, 
keep, because of my age, some things about my past that I didn't know about. And one of them was that the guy who um, I thought was my father was actually not, that she got pregnant with me when she was really young, and the guy who was my father actually walked out on her and said, I'm, I've got a future, and I'm not about to give up my future for this, this mistake. And he kind of checked out my mom, and so my mom was, um, so as about a 13-year-old, this is being downloaded into me. And the realization that I actually had a father and that my father had bailed on me and, and that he had left because of his selfishness started to do things in me while I was starting to work through life that by the time I get into college, I had essentially made a commitment to myself that I was not going to allow people who I'd never met. I mean, the fact that this guy I'd never even met could hurt me emotionally was, was kind of a surprising thing for me. And I'd kind of resolved, I'm not going to be damaged or hurt by people like that. And I'll never forget the moment right after I cheated on my girlfriend for the first time. And walking out of that experience, realizing that the thing I had hated in my father, I had started to become myself. And that I had tried to run from my past. And God, in his grace, said, no, the only way you find healing is to go through your past. Which meant that within a few weeks of literally praying, processing, and asking God to forgive my father for what he had done to me and my mom, and me coming to a place where I had forgiven him, within 24 hours of praying that prayer, I was talking to him on the phone for the first time my entire life. And what I found is that what do you do when the past has you? Is it begins with you confronting your past, not running from it. And then that there's healing that comes when you start to stand and face it. But in verse 17, I think this is a critical turning point to the story. She says, I have no husband. So this is a big moment. She has this point in the, inter in the interaction and in the exchange between her and Jesus she has, a, she has a choice to make when Jesus asks, go and get your husband. She can hide or she can be honest. Right? She can continue to conceal it or she can confess it. And this is the second part that's critical if we're going to find freedom from our past. It's not just confronting our past. That takes courage. But you also have to confess it and own it. You see, she, she says, I don't have a husband. Like, I'm found out. You've, obviously, as she says in verse 19, I see that you are a prophet. <laughs> like, you know things that I didn't know that you knew. If you, one of, one of those kind of TED Talks that's, that's been really popular recently has been the one on vulnerability by Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a professor at University of Houston. She's written a phenomenal book that's just come out in the last month about rising strong, about overcoming burdens and challenges and obstacles in our past. Um, but one of the things that, um, that propelled Brene Brown into 
kind of celebrity status within academics and even people in the popular culture was her talk, her TED talk on vulnerability. Because she, she talks about the power of shame and guilt and, and that when we choose to be vulnerable and humble, we take one of shame's most powerful weapons away from it. See, shame and guilt thrive in secrecy, don't they? If you're, if you're struggling with something, whether it's pornography or whether it's addictions to shopping or alcohol or drugs, right, or, or you're just a perpetual liar because you're always trying to, like, make sure that you look better than you actually are, like, the, those things are driven and fueled by secrecy. It's I've, no one knows, and because no one knows, you build this little dark bubble around yourself. And she says that there is power when we begin to speak and name our shame. And that's what this woman is doing. Brene Brown isn't discovered something in the 21st century. She's just uncovered what Jesus was already happening, what was already happening between Jesus and this woman at the well. That there is power when we begin to confess and when we begin to own up to our mistakes and our failures and our brokenness. You see, if you've grown up in a religious context, it's, it's the, I think the challenge of the religious context that we're going to see is it, it comes with baggage, and that baggage can distort and confuse. And so even a word like sin that maybe you've, you've heard before, or maybe you've never fully grasped what sin is, it, sin is typically driven by looking for the right thing, but it's looking for the right thing in the wrong places and in the wrong way. It's a violation of what God intended for us. It goes against his law. It goes against how he orchestrated and, um, and kind of created. And he's saying, look, this is the deal. This is what I've laid out. And so whether you call it sin or you call it brokenness, the reality is it's going against what he desired. And it's looking for the right thing in all the wrong places. And because it's the right thing, we tend to struggle with confessing it. We, we want to say, well, it's, it's good. No. She, she owns up to the fact that, you know what, I'm living this life. And she finds that even in speaking it to another human being, because she's living in isolation, there starts to be freedom. One of the most powerful moments, um, and one of the most beautiful moments, actually, that I've ever witnessed of the power of vulnerability and humility happened when I was in grad school. I was taking a course in addiction counseling. And um, so one of our, like, requirements for the course was you had to essentially infiltrate a um, 12-step program. Because of 12 steps, nature of it being very um, honesty and humility and integrity and all those things being so critical to the, the, like, strength of it, we had to go in and basically not reveal that we were grad students doing research. And um, I had come from a past that had struggled with a lot of different addictions in life. And I chose, along with a friend of mine, to go to SA. And SA is um, specifically the group of anonymous kind of gatherings that deal with kind of sexual struggles. And so uh, you find it in the classifieds. It's a bit like a spy novel. It's this like obscure paragraph. You have to know what to look for. And it tells you when the doors open, at what building. And so you drive up to this random place in a kind of a rough part of town with sheets are all over the glass. The door opens up. People pop out of their car simultaneously, and they all rush in. 
and the doors close and lock. And so me and my friend, we walk in, and we spend about 90 minutes to two hours. And I'll, quite honest, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever witnessed. Because people went around the circle, and they walked in, and there was no mask, and there was no facade. There was no, I got this, I've got life figured out. It was just real. And one guy would confess a lot of things that I can't say. And people would mourn with him. And they would say, oh. And there was genuinely a brokenness they had for him in his brokenness. And another guy would get up and he would, he would say, today is one year that I've been free from my addiction. And you would have swore the Patriots had won a Super Bowl. These people would begin to applaud and clap and cheer and celebrate. And I walked out of that meeting and I looked at my friend Bart and I said, Bart, I think that's what the church is supposed to look like. Because those people were honest, humble. Nobody was judged. But because they were together, they were better. And that's why one of the things that is, is core to the DNA of who we are is our groups. Because we believe that we can be better together. That none of us have it figured out. In fact, if you're the perfect person who's walked in this room today, let me go ahead and be honest with you. You should probably leave because you're not going to fit in here. Because none of us are perfect. In fact, this whole thing is centered around the only perfect one who loves us and steps into our imperfection in spite of our own imperfections. And that our groups, whether it's in rallying together to serve or, or kind of circling up weekly to process through the scripture and what does it mean for a personal and professional life, what you find in either one of those is a commitment to just be real. And that there are so many of us across the spectrum that gather every single week here. And some of us are so skeptical of this thing, but there's something inside of us that's like this woman that's thirsting for deeper, something that can maybe satisfy. And there's some that are sold out and said, you know what, I believe it's Jesus and I met him and my life was transformed by him and I've been walking for him decades. And that all of us are welcomed here. And that all of us are loved here. And that's what I think that woman tasted. And that by itself, quite honestly, is powerful and attractive. But Jesus doesn't stop. Because see, in the midst of the conversation and her confessing to another human being, because there's power in that, of us just being honest and real with each other. Not just as a church, but with your spouse. Right? With your children, with your friends, and not allowing those dark shadows of life to creep in and create pockets of secrecy where guilt and shame can grow. But notice in verse 19, after Jesus is, is kind of confronted her past and she's now confessed her past, we see him, we see her say, I see that you're a prophet. And there's a lot that we can't even begin to unpack. But she goes into a conversation about religion. 
And uh, she, she begins to ask all these questions about, well, you Jews believe this mountain, but we believe it's this mountain is where you're supposed to offer sacrifices. And he says in verse 21, woman, and it's not like woman, you know, that kind of like derogatory thing. This actual, this statement um, is a powerful, like in, in the Greek, it's actually a word of respect. Like Jesus, by calling her this phrase, actually brings her up to his equal. And a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi didn't even talk to his wife in public. And some of you are like, oh my goodness, I married a Jewish rabbi, right? You're like, who knew? But like a good Jewish man, he didn't talk to his wife in public. And, and here's Jesus elevating this woman to his equal status by saying, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worship what they do not know. We worship what we do know. He says, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in the truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman says, oh my goodness. I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I am. The one speaking to you am he. See, I think it's very natural what happens that she goes to religion. Because in confessing her, her struggles, her brokenness to him, there's still this desire to say, what, is, what about God and the equation? And she starts to unpack the challenges and the frustration she's had with religion. She was like, your religion says this, our religion says this, what's the deal? Because it's all about me bringing sacrifices. It's all about us trying to be good enough for God. And I know I'm not good enough for God. So what do you think? Because obviously you've got some insight that I don't have because you knew I was married five different times. And he goes to conversation where he starts using words like gift and salvation, where he starts to use words like the father is seeking like, he, he starts to talk about things this woman has never heard before. And it's, in some ways, very similar to conversations I had in the summer of my junior year. I lived in Thailand for a month teaching English um, to kind of imp- impoverished uh, Muslim kids because they were kind of on the, the fringe. And um, I just think Jesus cares about people on the fringe. Jesus are, is drawn to lonely people. Jesus is drawn to broken people. That's why he's at this well. And so we should be the same. And, and so in the midst of that, I interacted with a lot of Buddhist monks because that was just, they're everywhere. And so I was at a temple having a conversation with this guy who was about my same age. And we were talking about religion. And he was talking about all the things he was doing to, to kind of get in good graces with his deity. And he was asking me, well, what do you believe? And I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean if you're a Christian? And, and in the midst of trying to unpack our conversation, after a, about a month of living there, I get on the plane to fly back to the United States. And this happens to be at the same time when the movie John Q comes out. If you've ever seen John Q, it is powerful, and it will emotionally mess you up. But the whole plot line, the climax of this movie is um, John who is the father to a son who's dying because of an organ failure. 
And because of an insurance issue, he can't get his son on an organ transfer list. And now his son is dying. And so he comes in, he takes a hospital hostage, and he basically demands that someone save his son. And the the whole plot develops around that and and intensifies around that. And the climax of of this whole entire movie happens when he realizes there's probably not going to be an organ that's going to get here in time. And so the camera cuts to him being in an operating room ready to sacrifice his life because he knows inside of him is an organ that can bring life to his dying son's broken body. And sitting on that airplane, weeping, watching how this father loved his son, I realized that this was what I wish I could have articulated to the Buddhist monk that was my age asking the questions of why I believe what I believe. That the heartbeat of what Jesus, when he says the hour is coming, is that the father recognizes that we are broken within ourselves and that we desperately need a transplant if we're going to live. And that the only one who can transfer that organ and save us is the perfect one of God. And that he willingly sacrifices his life so that we could have life in the same way in that scene when that father was ready to die on an operating table so that his son could receive an organ to continue to live. Jesus, in confronting this woman's past and her confessing her past, he says, I've got this incredible offer for you. It's a gift to change your past for a future, to take your brokenness and to give you beauty, to take your hopelessness, your fears, your loneliness, and give you community, hope, and longing. And that the way you do it is when he says, believe me. Put your faith and your trust in me. We, we put, he's like, look, she doesn't even argue about the faith thing because she's been putting her faith and her trust in men for, for far too long. And Jesus is like, sweetie, you've missed it. You've been putting your faith in the wrong men. You're, you should have put your faith in me. Because I'm here to change out your past and to give you a future. When I was in college, I think last week I shared, I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And in the midst of working through that, I began to see a counselor. And in one of the sessions, the counselor looks at me and says, I think I've got a handle on one of your problems. It's insecurity. And he, he literally says, you've your problem is insecurity. He says, so what I want you to do, here's, here's a slip of paper and there's some things on it. I want you to go home and in the morning and the evening, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror and I want you to say, I am loved. I am valued. I am wanted. And in my head, after doing that, I thought I am an idiot. Because if my problem is insecurity, I am the worst person on planet earth to say these things to myself. I believe that woman woke up every day and she looked in the mirror of her life and she, with all of her ability, tried to rise up inside of her. I am loved. 
I am wanted. I am valued. And what she discovered that day at the well, notice what Jesus says. When she, when she said that the Messiah, and he says, I am he. He uses a phrase that for her or for any Jewish reader would have been like, what did he just say? He says, I am he. So for you people who like grammar, you're like, that's awkward, right? I'm he. But Jesus was quoting a phrase that God himself said to Moses on a mountain. When Moses said, who are you? And God, with the ultimate mic drop, says, my name is I am. Like, booyah. Like, that's a name right there. What's your name? I am. I am. That I am. And Jesus, in this exchange with her, he says, I am. And that woman that day discovered that the I am loved that the I am wanted and valued her. And that she was done with insecurity because now she was in security. And that what I hope you have heard whispered into your heart and your soul, the same thing said over the woman at the well is being said over you and me. Even if you don't buy it, even if you don't believe it, even if you've just come to in, to, you've came into this place skeptical, is that the God of the universe says, I made you, I formed you, I love you, I want you, I value you. And that there is an objective value statement over all of us. That there is a dignity over all of us because the creator, the I am, the star former, the ocean maker has said, I love you. Not I love you because what you've done. Not I love you because what you will do. I love you, period. Not I love you or I value you because of the house you have or the car that you drive or the job or the title or the education. I value you because I made you. I formed you. I thought you up. I give you the, high, the eye color. I give you the hair color. I give you those quirks. I made you. I love you. And that the next steps for us as we just close out today and we close out the series, maybe if you're a little bit skeptical, maybe just that your heart shifts a little bit and you're willing to say, well, what if God loves me that much? What if he values me and wants me? You see, this woman, and she ran back to the village because here's the thing, when that kind of love takes over your life, you can find that the past you used to run from, the very people she was running from, she now runs to. Because that's what he does to us. And maybe for some of you, your next step is you're like, you know what? I'm that woman. I know my life is broken. I know my heart is heavy. And I want to stop running away from my past. I want to run through my past. I want to stop running from those people and run to those people. I want the forgiveness. I want the grace. I want the love. I need help. And you just say, God, help me believe that that's true about me, that you love me that much.
And for some of us, maybe sold out or maybe living solitary lives because we're so caught up in the shame and guilt. What if you, you just stopped by starting point today and you signed up for a group and you tested us out and discovered that you really will be loved and accepted for who you are? Because we all need Jesus. And we also all need people like Jesus around our lives.